Welcome to the Three Down Nation podcast. I'm Justin Dunk, joined by John Hodge. Today, we're discussing one of the Calgary Stampeders' young star receivers suffering an off-season injury. The Winnipeg Blue Bombers adding kicker Sergio Castillo mere hours after he was released by the Edmonton Elks. The NFL partnering with Football Canada. And the Toronto Argonauts unveiling some new helmets. But first... The Edmonton Elks posted a net operating loss of $3.3 million in 2022, posting a deficit for the fourth straight year. Is this something fans in the Alberta Capitol and across the Canadian Football League should be worried about? I don't think that anybody should be hitting the panic button right now in terms of what the Edmonton Elks are facing. With that being said... This is a trend that needs to change, and it needs to change as soon as possible. And you talked to Victor Quay, the team's president and CEO, during the Combine, and he was very open and honest about the struggles the team has faced. Uh, he also, in his address in the Elks annual report that was unveiled on Tuesday, it's on their website. We also have a link to it in our article on 3Down. If you can't find it, it's a little, it's a little tricky to find on the Elks website. Um, you know, In his admission, he, he wrote about how the team has struggled on the field. He said, and I quote, we simply didn't deliver the results needed to return the double E to CFL prominence, close quote. That is flat out, you know, that, that is not media speak or team speak. That is an admission, and I applaud Victor Quee for doing that. He's also not necessarily responsible for the mess that the Elks find themselves in. It's partly due to the COVID pandemic. It's partly due to the previous administration there, which frankly was incompetent, and all of the firings that took place and buyouts that cost the team a lot of money from from some bad hires that they'd made previously. But let's break down some of these numbers, Dunk. The $3.3 million loss comes from a few different things. One, the team received $2.6 million in government assistance in 2021. They didn't receive any in 2022. So that's a big hit to their pocketbook. Local sponsorship revenue also fell by 13% from $4.7 million in 2021 to $4.1 million in 2022. Losing sponsors is not a good thing. And obviously, when you're losing games on the field and you haven't won at home since October 2019, I, I can appreciate why sponsors don't necessarily want to be you know, connected to you. Something else I will point out, and I'm not an expert at reading financial reports, so if someone from the club wants to correct me, please do. But looking at the numbers, this team had a $15 million legacy fund or stabilization fund that they did not touch throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, according to their financial report this year, they took out $4.1 million from that fund, drawing it down to a balance of 11.6. So to me, this looks like they didn't need, right? Their legacy fund, that extra money that they got sitting around that's invested, that they've built up over the years to get through the pandemic. But suddenly they are needing it to weather this storm, which has come from, again, I think a lot of on-field issues, potentially some off-field issues. And that is why this needs to stop because the Edmonton Elks need to be one of the CFL's strongest franchises. They have been for you know the last 50 years, but that, that trend has changed over the last little bit, turning the Elks from you know a perennial have team to somewhat of a have-not team. And that, as hard as it is to imagine, is, is the truth. The real truth here, John, is the fact that Chris Presson took this team away from the fans angered the fan base and I think that is really the issue here 
that Victor Kui is trying to deal with and dig out of an oil well-sized hole from because of the wrongdoings by an arrogant American who became the president there. And I'm not saying his American status has anything to do with it, but I think he thought he could reinvent everything there in Edmonton when in reality all of that change taking the double e off the helmet for example and going away from that logo felt like he was taking the team away from that dedicated fan base Victor Kui has worked very hard to bring the team back closer to the fans and regain that trust that was destroyed by Chris Preston now yes the team was not good at all under GM Brock Sunderland and Jamie Elizondo in that disaster year in 2021. But I really think that the team is dealing with the ramifications from a lot of terrible decisions by Chris Presson. So that's the issue. Now, that hire goes to and lays at the feet of the Edmonton Elks board of directors. They were the ones that decided to bring Presson in as president, and it failed miserably on a lot of levels. So I think the Elks have dipped into that legacy fund to try to speed up the process of correcting the mistakes and the wrongdoings of Preston. And I think Victor Quee is the guy to do that for the Edmonton Elks. And I think the CFL would be lucky, honestly, if one day in the future, Victor Quee was the commissioner of the league. Now, He's not there right now, and I'm not saying Randy Ambrosi is doing a terrible job, even though I think some people would disagree with that, but he's a very forward-thinking individual. So I don't think that this string of the Edmonton Elks losing money for four straight years is going to continue in the future. Their digital numbers are way up in terms of engagement with fans. They're just trying to get fans back in the seats. There's guaranteed win ticket out there for the first game that if you go to that first game in a certain section and buy a ticket and the Elks continue this terrible losing streak at home, you get a ticket to the next game until they win at home. Now that's obviously on Chris Jones and the football team to get W's. And I think that will certainly help, but I think Victor Quee reconnecting this fan, this team with the fan base and the fans that are in the Alberta capital will be the real key here to them turning a profit in the near future. Well, and Preston was the former president who was fired following the 2021 season. And no, I, I don't think any of these lo- these losses are to blame on Kui. Kui was hired in January 2022. So this is his first full year that's just finished. And as as you laid out, Dunk, for all the reasons in 2021, this team was likely not going to be profitable in 2022 no matter what. Um, and there were some areas where revenues increased. This team saw increased revenue in terms of gate, they they went from five point three million to six point six million in twenty twenty two. Now attendance actually dropped on an average basis, but in twenty twenty one, the team only had seven home games. In twenty twenty two, they had ten, one preseason followed by nine regular season games. So that was due to increase. Something else that was interesting: CFL distributions increased from four million to six point four million, and this is a really unique look into the CFL's financials because the CFL's six privately owned teams are completely mum on of course any details pertaining to their bottom lines and and whether or not their clubs actually make or lose money 
the three community-owned teams, Edmonton, Saskatchewan, Winnipeg, because their numbers are public, provide us some insight there. So the league's distributions were up by over 50%. That's got to be a good thing. And then concessions also increased at Commonwealth. I would assume partly due to the extra number of games. But uh, so, so there are some signs for optimism. But the thing I will point out, Dunk, is this team back in 2020 during the canceled season lost $7.1 million. The Riders lost 7.5 and the Bombers lost 7. We don't know what the Riders' financials are for 2022 yet, but the Bombers made almost 5 million bucks this past season. And so the Bombers have managed to take a 7 million loss two years ago and turn it into $5 million of profit. The Elks, they lost 7.1 in 2020. Well, they've lost 3.3 in, in, two point, in, in 2022. And obviously on field is part of that. Right. The Bombers have been great and they've been a three straight great cops and, and they seem to win all of their home games. And so that's obviously part of it. But um, this is a pattern that the Elks need to follow. Again, I don't think anyone should hit the panic button. And I do agree with you, Dunk. Victor Kui is, I think, absolutely the right person to lead this team into its new era and reestablish that confidence that clearly fans in that market have lost. But with that being said, I think things do need to change. And and part of that, something that might help that, is the new chair. Ian Murray completed his term as the chair of the team's board of directors and has been replaced by Tom Richards, who used to be the club's treasurer and way back in the day played receiver for the team and uh, even had a 1,000-yard season in 1989, which I thought was pretty cool. Uh, according to Morley Scott, voice of the team on six uh, uh, 630 Ched in Edmonton, he is the first former uh, player to be the chairman of the board, which I think is pretty neat. So we'll see. I'm optimistic about the future dunk, but this thing's got to get turned around. And I don't think it can be a long, long, long term process. I think we need to see progress in 2023. Definitely. And that's why there is a lot of pressure on Chris Jones to have a winning, winning record in 2023. He's first of all on year by year contract. So that's smart from the elk standpoint that they're not potentially paying out a bunch of money like they did for Chris Preston and Brock Sunderland and Jamie Elizondo who signed multi-year deals that were guaranteed. So they had to pay out that money to those guys. The Elks can move on from Chris Jones after the season if they want with no financial ramifications. So there's major pressure here on Chris Jones, especially with the momentum Victor Quee has created. And that's part of the reason why the Elks went on a bit of a spending spree in free agency. But they're one of the teams last year who did not go over the salary cap. So even though some people think Jones is going to go over it, he's proven in the past, as recently as last year, that that was not, in fact, the case. And if you're the Elks front office or even their fans, ideally Taylor, Taylor Cornelius takes a big step forward. The corn dog out there, they've got a bunch of receivers around him led by Geno Lewis, and there's some young and veteran playmakers on defense. But ultimately winning is what is going to make this team very profitable and have a big swing like the Blue Bombers did. It's great to see that that swing can happen, but it actually has to take place. And even if the Elks are just competitive and around the 500 mark, I think that could really help this team get back into positive numbers. Legendary CFL and NFL quarterback Joe Cap passed away on Monday at the age of 85 following a long battle with dementia. How will you remember the hard-nosed competitor? 
as a fighter, man, that dude was as scrappy as they come in a much different era of football. And I believe he is the only person to ever play in the Rose Bowl, Super Bowl, and a Grey Cup. So he is one of those throwback, legendary type of players that is going to be celebrated on both sides of the border, both in collegiate football in the NCAA in the CFL, obviously, and in the NFL. But I will never forget the fight, I'll call it, that he got in with Angelo Mosca (laughs) when those two guys still showed that that rivalry ran deep, even though they were up there in age. And that, to me, is what I will always remember about Joe Cap, a feisty competitor who wasn't going to ever let an old rivalry die. Yeah, they say that time heals all wounds. And when somebody tells you that, I want you to show them video of Joe Cap and Angela <laughs> Mosca at the 2011 Grey Cup. I think it was alumni luncheon because time did not heal that wound. It did not. It didn't even make it better. If anything, it seemed to be worse. And I will say, I don't want to sound disrespectful to Cap's family and friends, um, but recency bias dictates that that is, of course, the thing that comes to mind. Not many people covering the CFL today are old enough to remember Joe Cap's playing career. He, his final year took place in 1970 with the Boston Patriots, and uh, he last worked in the CFL in 1990 as the GM of the BC Lions, which is like bef- the year before I was born. So even me, I, I don't remember him being around the game. I remember the fight. And that fight, I think, also blew up partly because it also coincided with the birth of social media, right? If that fight had happened in 2005, there's probably not video and it probably doesn't circulate everywhere. The fact that it happened in 2011 means that we all got to see it. And of course, it involved another legend who has since passed in the great Angelo Bosca. So Joe Cap, I mean, you mentioned the Rose Bowl, the Super Bowl, the Grey Cup. I mean... Not only that, I mean, he played he played 12 years of professional football, but he was also a coach for five years at his alma mater at Cal. And he was also, again, a GM in the CFL. And he's, he's also part of the Canadian Football Hall of Fame. He's also part of the College Football Hall of Fame. Like when you stack that resume together, he might be the only person in the world who has that list of accolades. Rose Bowl, Grey Cup, Super Bowl, College Football Hall of Fame, CFL Hall of Fame, a, a GM at the professional level and a coach at the power five college level like that resume is unbelievably stacked and i tweeted a photo yesterday when news broke of his passing of him and the late great bud grant and it's wild when you when you talk about moscow when you talk about grant when you talk about cap and of course it should be noted cap and grant had the connection from the minnesota vikings days it is it is wild to think that we've not only lost them all but we've lost them all in you know relatively short period of time and and you know football i think on both sides of the border is lessened for the losses that that we've experienced yes these these gentlemen were all um you know uh, elderly cap was 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 84 uh, i think bud grant was 95 moscow was well into his is i think late 70s early 80s but it doesn't take away from from the sting of them them uh then passing and and you know i i joined football fans on both sides of the border in mourning again i i didn't i didn't get to watch joe cat play but you know he, he's a legend there's no other way to say it i don't think you can find a person who the term legend applies to more 
than than a guy like Joe Cap. Well said, Hutch. The Winnipeg Blue Bombers signed kicker Sergio Castillo mere hours after he was released by the Edmonton Elks. The teams had been discussing a trade. This will be the 32-year-old's third stint with the Blue and Gold and first since he helped the team win the Grey Cup in 2021. How does this impact the kicking game in the peg? Well, I'll say this. I, I have a piece up on the website, Three Down Nation. You might have heard of it. Breaking down the different position battles that are going to be taking place in training camp with the Bombers. And I think the kicking game is the one that at least local fans are going to be paying the most attention to. I will say this. I have seen since this news so many tweets, comments, whatever from Bomber fans who still blame Mark Leggio for losing the Grey Cup this past year. And yes, he had a field goal that was blocked. And yes, it looked low coming out late in that game. And it's a kick that he should have made. But by that same token... He was not the worst player on the Winnipeg Blue Bombers in that game. That was a game that the offense uh, largely played terribly. And um, credit also goes to Corey Mace, the defensive coordinator in Toronto, uh, for that and shutting down Winnipeg's offense. But I just want to get that out of the way. Mark Leggy was not the reason the Bombers lost that game. He was just the most... He was, he, he was just involved in what happened at the very end of the game, and that's why people are blaming him. But that said, he only made 82% of his field goals this past year. was not great. His net average punting-wise was 36.5 yards that tied for sixth league-wide. Also not great. Uh, so to me, Castillo comes in, and he immediately secures that place-kicking position. He should do the kickoffs. He should do the field goals. The punting side of it's going to be interesting because the Bombers brought in a ton of challengers. I'm hoping I'm saying all these names right. They've got Devin Actill, Chris McLean, Mark Orozco, Carl Schmitz, and Chandler Staten. Now, I was not familiar with any of these individuals before the Bombers signed them. To me, the only ones with a real shot at unseating Legio are McLean and Schmitz because they are Canadian and global respectively, while the others are American. With Castillo place kicking, I can't see the Bombers dressing two specialists. So we'll see. I, I, McLean was a first team all Canadian with the Calgary Dinos this past season. Schmitz is from Bermuda and he's 36 years old and he's been out of football for a long time. So who the heck knows what he's going to look like? He might look great. He might look terrible. Nobody knows. I'm curious from an outsider's perspective, Dunk in the peg, who you think will be doing the kicking and punting this year. <laughs> it's unbelievable that this global draft has worked out where the Bombers are selecting a kicker in his mid-30s who hasn't been in football. Global 2.0 or CFL 2.0 for the win. And I'm obviously being sarcastic with that. I think that this kicking competition and the discussion around Mark Leggio has been changed because it wasn't too long ago where making over 80% of your field goals was considered really good in the CFL and even in professional football. But now with the accuracy that all of these kickers have, you really can't miss one and you got to be in the 90% range. And that's what Renee Paredes has done for years with the Calgary Stampeders. And people would argue that a lot of those kicks have come from inside 40 yards or even 50 yards, but he still put the ball through the uprights, especially in a lot of spots where it mattered most. And, Ultimately, yes, it's recently biased and it's easy for fans to point to, but Legio should have got that kick up higher and it would have washed away all of the things that the offense was not able to do and got this team a third straight great cup. And I think if you even take that play out of it, 
Hodge and you look at this objectively, that it was time to at least have some competition there. They let Mark Leggio have this job for, what, a couple years now? It didn't really bring in much competition. So I think the competition is great for him. And Sergio Castillo has shown that he can perform in those pressure situations. And he is going to be a guy that you can rely upon to win you a great cup. He was arguably the MVP of that game in 2021. There was a lot of people calling for him to be the MVP instead of going the old tired and true route and giving it to Zach Caleros, who, yes, played well for Winnipeg, but not as well on that day as Sergio Castillo did. So I think there's a great chance that Castillo is going to be the one hitting the ball and maybe they keep Mark Leggio around as a depth piece. He's clearly going to have to improve as a punter. And I think Chris McLean out of the University of Calgary, I've seen him doing Canada West football showcase broadcasts out West. That dude's legit. He's got a big leg and to kick for Calgary, you need to be accurate as well. The way that program is run They recruit really well, and they have some great special teams, even though last year was a struggle, at least in terms of the win-loss column for the Dinos. So McLean is legit. I could absolutely see him sticking around and earning a spot on that Blue Bombers roster as the punter. And I think Legio's not necessarily out of it, but he's got to perform now with this increased competition around it. Well, and Castillo made 84% of his kicks last year so this isn't a situation where you know mark legio was at 70 and castillo was at 95 like they they were very close last year and legio to his credit made a 55 yard not necessarily like walk-off field goal game winner but like a very late fourth quarter game winner on labor day which is a must-win game obviously for the blue bombers the downside of his performance this past year yes there was the great cup but there was also the game in the summertime at IG Field, where they hosted the Montreal Alouettes, they just needed a single late in the game with with the game really on the line. And he not only missed the field goal, but he didn't get the ball at the back of the end zone and went to overtime. And then he put the field goal off the upright. So he did have a couple of really rough late game performances, but he did also have some heroics and make some some pressure kicks. So I agree with you, Dunk. Competition is good because you're right. This team is generally not brought in. A lot of competition for Mark Leggio in camp, uh, and they brought in seven legs this year uh, with an eighth potentially coming in the club's first round global draft pick as well. So a lot of competition for Leggio, and I'm excited. There's not, again, as I mentioned, there's not a ton of spots up for grabs on this Blue Bombers roster, but kicker is the one that I'm constantly hearing about from fans, for better or worse. And so the kicking battle, we'll see how it goes in the peg. The Calgary Stampeders revealed that Jalen Philpott, the fifth overall pick in last year's CFL draft, will be sidelined indefinitely after undergoing surgery to repair a hamstring injury he suffered while training in March. What does this mean for Philpott, and what does this mean for the Stamps? It's going to be a setback for Philpott initially, but I do think he can recover from it. And for the Stamps offense to start the season until Philpott gets healthy, it means one of their most dynamic playmakers. And yes, I'm saying that despite him being as young as he is, is out of the lineup. He had over a thousand all-purpose yards, three touchdowns as a rookie. And I always thought that Jalen and Tyson Philpott, his twin brother, who's a receiver for the Montreal Alouettes right now, were dynamic players. But to me, Jalen 
always stuck out as the more explosive one. Tyson is really good, don't get me wrong, but Jalen Philpott has the potential to be a great Canadian receiver in this league for a long time. He's explosive. He has a burst. He can go up and get the football in traffic, come down, break a tackle, and take it to the end zone. He's got some special ball abilities in my mind in terms of going and getting it. And I think the explosiveness will come once the game continues to slow down for him. So it's going to be a blow for the Stampeders offense, which this year is going to be led by Jake Mayer, who will be the unquestioned starter through training camp. And of course, into the regular season with Bo Levi Mitchell, now a member of the Hamilton Tiger Cats. I do think the Stamps can manage this on offense. They've always been a team that has been able to put, especially the next receiver in and a lot of times get production. But the fact that he's Canadian really is a blow to the Stamps. Now, of course, they went out and drafted Cole Tucker in the first round of the CFL draft, and he's a guy who could potentially step in right away and be productive, but I don't think he can come close at least right away to the level that Jalen Philpott played at last season and to the level that he could have been at this year with a full CFL season already under his belt. Yeah, sometimes hear haters of the CFL draft talk about how like, oh, well, these guys never do anything. Well, Jalen Philpott had over a thousand all-purpose yards last year as a rookie straight out of U Sports, which is pretty special. He also put up three touchdowns. To me, I'll say this first, the Calgary Stampeders deserve credit here for making this announcement. A lot of teams would have tried to hide this or been coy about the injury Or even when asked directly by a reporter, when will he be back? They just kind of shrug and say like, oh, well, we're not. Uh, To me, this is clear. and This is speculating now, but it's clear Jalen Philpott's not playing this year. And he still has a very bright future in front of him. He's only 22 years old. But when you undergo surgery, like very shortly before the season starts, I don't see any path for you realistically being back that same year. So the club has not ruled him out officially for 2023, but reading between the tea leaves, I don't think we're going to see him play this upcoming season. And this partly, I think, explains the club's draft strategy, right? They took Cole Tucker in round one, and they doubled back, and they took Clark Barnes in round three. Those were the number two and three rated receivers by Three Down Nation in this year's draft And the number one was Jared Wayne, who's not available because he signed with the Houston Texans as a UDFA. So I love the draft that the Stampeders had even more now because they've added some firepower to the receiving core. On the Canadian side, Cole Tucker has yet to sign because he has had some minicamp opportunities down south, specifically with the Minnesota Vikings. But I know Clark Barnes, who was arguably the best player at the entire CFL Combine, has already signed with the team and should be in camp. And heck, he could be starting. I mean, yes, the club has Luther Hackadavanu. They've got Colton Hunchak, who's kind of a an undersized slot guy who could find spots and sit down. But Clark Barnes, I think, is the best athlete of the bunch. And I think he's going to push them for a starting role. So good for the Samps for announcing this and being transparent. I don't understand why more teams don't do this, especially even just for fans, right? Fans want to know what's going on with the team. And and the club didn't announce it till after the draft. They didn't want to tip their hand in their draft strategy, which makes a lot of sense. But just be honest with your fans. You don't want fans questioning, hey, why isn't this guy playing? Who's this? And being confused. Just be straight up. Be honest. And so good on the stamps. And best of luck to Jalen as he recovers from this injury. And teams should know by now, Hodge, if they're not going to announce things like this, like Jalen Philpott being out indefinitely, that 
eventually and usually quickly, Three Down Nation is going to find out and they're going to be the ones to put the news out first. So, yes, full credit <laughs> to the Stampeders for announcing this. I hope Phil Pocket can back on the field this season. And I think that's why the indefinite tag was put on this by the Stampeders. But hamstrings can be fickle and tricky and unpredictable. So I think that's why the team has put this label on it. I don't think it's to be nefarious and to not put a timeline on it, but I think that's the real reason. Hopefully for Jalen Philpott and the Stampeders, he's able to get back on the field. But Hodge, you alluded to it, that worst case scenario is he's not back on the field until 2024, which would just be a major blow to this organization, and especially for Philpot, whose career was trending upwards very quickly. But you also want to do right by the player. So I like the indefinite tag as well because it doesn't put the thought in the player's mind that he needs to rush back. Too many times in professional football, and I think especially in the CFL, it doesn't get talked about enough, players are encouraged or persuaded to come back before they're healthy I think that needs to stop and it seems like the Stampeders are doing right by Phil Pot in this case but I'll, I'll point out too before we move on the Stampeders were extremely patient with Kamar Jordan over the years right Kamar Jordan has been an all-star receiver in this league and missed I don't even know how many games there there was a stretch of two years where I think he played like three games and so this is a team that has shown their patient with their receivers. And, and you make a great point, Don, because, yes, guys are often asked to come back too soon, which is not in their best interest. And I would argue it's also not in the best interest of the team, at least on a long-term basis. So hopefully that pattern repeats in Cowtown. NFL Canada and Football Canada have struck a new partnership. The partnership seeks to grow the game north of the border through youth participation, coaching clinics, women's football, flag football, and programs for underserved communities, as well as strengthening player pathways to international competition. Hodge, what do you make of this development? Well, for one, I'll say good for Football Canada. I know Football Canada has has official partnerships with the CFL, they have official partnerships with the CFLPA. They have official partnerships with you know all, all kinds of stakeholders, and they now have one with the NFL. So good for Football Canada. They are our amateur organization in this country that nurtures grassroots football, that assists with international competition, growing the game, and not just for young boys and men, but for women and girls as well. And um, and we just saw the CFL recently part of Football Canada for their officiating task force, which is great. So I love this for Football Canada. Obviously, this shows the interest that the NFL has in growing its fan base in Canada. The NFL has already taken hold, and all the, the, the polling shows this with young Canadians, especially young men. Young men in this country are far more likely to watch the Super Bowl and the NFL on a weekly basis than they are to watch the Great Cup or the CFL on a weekly basis. And... This, I'm hoping, is a way to light the fire under the CFL offices, but to try to do more to support amateur football in this country. There are teams and players and coaches across the CFL who do amazing work with local initiatives and getting into schools and coaching kids and volunteering their time. But the CFL front office, in my opinion, needs to do more. We ran an article on Three Down Nation last month about all the initiatives the teams have done from from coast to coast 
and over $3 million getting injected into amateur football, which is a great start. And I know that the CFL is not coming out of, you know, super bullish years. Everyone's lean coming out of the pandemic, but we need to do more to support football at the amateur level in this country. We need to make sure that kids are playing this game, be it tackle or flag. And the best way to ensure that they know the CFL exists and they become fans of of teams is to see those logos everywhere. Amar Dolman has talked repeatedly about coloring BC orange and even going as far as to have Lions Days in schools where kids wear their their gear. And yes, sometimes you got to give it away for free, but we need this league to be front and center for kids in this country. And uh, this just goes to show if the CFL doesn't do it, the NFL is going to step up and put their logos in front of everybody. So dunk to me that that is what this needs to be. This needs to be a a moment for the CFL to say, okay, it's great that our teams are doing stuff on their own, but we need more from our front office and, and our nationwide strategy to be more engaged with these uh, with these young players and 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 young fans potentially of the CFL. Usually, I don't put much thought or time or give much respect to quotes within these press releases because usually they're filled with flowery language and don't really say much. But this from Football Canada President Jim Mullen is worth hearing and repeating. If you didn't read it on 3 quote, our goal is to deliver programming to get more young people in Canada to play football and stay in the sport in all forms, an objective shared by the NFL. Simply put, the NFL is here to support what we do to grow football across the country. We believe this partnership has the ability to transform our organization's presence in the national landscape and support our members at the grassroots. That translated in my terms, is a direct shot at the CFL. The NFL is going to have more logos across this country on footballs, on flags, and in and around grassroots than the CFL will. The NFL is here to overtake the CFL. Now, I understand that the CFL is not the money-making machine that the NFL is, but the CFL needs to realize this and do what they talk about so much, but much, much more of it. They talk about how the players are out in the communities and how the CFL and the teams in the respective communities are there for the communities. Well, I think the players do a great job and put in a lot of hours to grow the game in those communities and support a lot of great initiatives led by the teams around the league. But the CFL needs to have its logo, for example, on footballs across this country. They should do everything they can to bar NFL logos from being on there. This is a competition. This is the NFL coming in the CFL's backyard and trying to steal interest and eyeballs and ingraining kids in their product. It doesn't matter if 99% of these players who play grassroots football are never going to play football in the NFL. It's about getting them engrossed in the game. And I have no better example than my two young nephews who I talk about on here from time to time, Liam and Elliot, who have been exposed to the CFL game through me and thanks to the Toronto Argonauts who had us out to a game last summer and allowed us to go behind the scenes. They started to love the CFL and they hear me talk about it so much just with what I do and traveling out West to do games. And they've been 
sort of overtaken with it, and they started to fall in love with Nathan Rourke, and now they want to follow him with the Jacksonville Jaguars. But more and more, you can see in their friends that the NFL has become a factor and that the NFL isn't talked about by some of their other friends. Liam is eight, Elliot is six, and they're talking more about the CFL than any of their friends combined who are in those age groups. And I don't want to say it's just because of me, but that's a large factor. And I wanted to go and show them how great this three-down game can be. They went to multiple University of Guelph home games last year and sat with me, I should say stood with me, right beside the field. And they love seeing those games. They want to go back there. They want to go back to more CFL games, but their friends are talking about the NFL more than they are. Now, that's not to say that the kids didn't take to the NFL as well and they wanted to follow the Bills playoff run. And then even when the Bills lost, they were picking teams in each of the playoff games all the way through the Super Bowl and watched the Super Bowl. But to me, it's another example of the NFL showing that they're here to compete and the CFL needs to compete in their own way. They're not going to be able to spend the type of the money the NFL is, but they need to at least have their logo out there in these grassroots programs to get to these kids early because they're going to see the logo or they're going to see a team logo, whatever market it happens to be in. Let's say it's the Rough Riders or the Tiger Cats or where you are with the Blue Bombers, and they're going to grow a natural interest in that team. So the CFL needs to realize that. And I think that is what Jim Mullen, the president of Football Canada, is getting at. The NFL is putting its time and its money where its mouth is. And the CFL needs to do more of it and realize that they're in a legitimate competition here. And that there are ways that the CFL can compete for those grassroots kids and their interest in the game of football. Well, you can't compete with the NFL in the States, but you should be able to compete with the NFL on home turf. Right. I know the NFL is a juggernaut. It's all powerful. It's all consuming. But you're not trying to beat the NFL in Texas or Florida or New York. You're trying to beat the NFL on your home turf with your own unique game. So to me, this is something that the CFL should be able to do. And for every dollar that they invest, um, my suspicion is that they're going to get a great return on investment down the line in, in whatever they put into these youth programs. Dante Bull, for instance, the first overall pick in the draft told me straight up that growing up in Victoria, BC, you know, he was, he was, he was pleased to see G Roy Simon now assistant general manager, of the Edmonton Elks at his pro day. Cause he grew up going to G Roy's camps in BC. So this is a perfect example of a guy who went to a power five school is now playing professionally back in his home country, partly at least, because of the exposure he got growing up, you know, we're talking 10, 12 years ago from a local legend in BC and in, in, in BC and G Roy Simon putting on these types of camps and programming. So the, the payoff is there. You just have to make the initial investment. It's now time for Hodge's heritage moment on this day in 29. It is there on this day in 2019, the Winnipeg blue bombers signed receiver, Chris Matthews. The Kentucky products became a star with the team in 2012, winning the league's most outstanding rookie award after making 81 catches for 1,192 yards and seven touchdowns. Matthews rejoined Winnipeg following a four-year stint in the NFL, but the reunion did not go well with the receiver being released after making just 12 catches in six games and getting stabbed at a downtown restaurant. Matthews signed with the Montreal Alouettes after getting cut by the Blue Bombers, 
but still struggled to be productive, making nine catches over five games. The 2019 season was his last in the CFL. Dunk, what do you remember about Chris Matthews? I remember him being almost a Super Bowl MVP and then just the downfall of his career that seemed to end rather quickly and abruptly. There was so much hype about him going back to Winnipeg. And then even when he signed in Montreal, there were some people there that thought he could get things turned around and focus on football, but that wasn't the case. So I'll remember Chris Matthews for the upside and how he did with the Seahawks in that Super Bowl, but more so for the downside because there was so much potential there, like a lot of other players, but with Matthews in particular, because he had flashed it in the CFL and the NFL multiple times. Let's go to the three-minute drill. The Indianapolis Colts waived Canadian tight end and former Hamilton Tiger Cat Nikola Kalinic. Do you think there's any chance he'll end up back with the Ticats? I don't think so yet. I think he is going to continue to pull out the string in the NFL. But if we do see him back in the CFL, I believe he is a free agent at this point. So he's going to command big dollars. He's going to be the highest paid fullback slash tight end, I think, in the CFL if he returns north of the border. The Toronto Argonauts unveiled a new Cambridge blue helmet ahead of the 2023 season with new uniforms still to come. Dunk, what do you think of the new lids? I really like the lid. It stands out, and I just hope that these uniforms live up to the hype. The team is teasing to drop these in late May, and Hodge, I'll give you this point because you made it as we were talking off air before recording the podcast. The team should have dropped these new uniforms in April, which is traditionally a very dead news month for the CFL. But anyways, that's what they're deciding to do. And I think the Argos uniforms did need a much needed update because they were quite bland, even though I think there's so many things that you can do with double blue. So I hope this helmet is just the start of some shiny new uniforms for the Toronto Argonauts that the fans can be proud of. And it seemed like the players are hyped. Chad Kelly, Sean Oakman, and Andrew Harris have been shown on videos by the team taking a sneak peek at them. So let's hope that they live up to all of this when they're unveiled in late May. The Edmonton Elks signed Gabriel Apia Kubi as an undrafted free agent. The York University receiver ran the fastest 40-yard dash at this year's CFL Combine, clocking in at 4.44 seconds. Do you think he can make the team with the green and gold? I'm not sure about that. He was not a very productive receiver with the Lions at the U Sports level. That being said, you can't teach speed. And the fact that he's running 4-4-4 means that at the very least, you bring him into camp. And, you know, we'll, we'll wait and see. The Elks are pretty stacked at receiver. So I don't love his chances. But again, speed kills. So you, you never know. The CFL announced its participants for this year's U-Sports QB internship program. Which of the nine passers are you most excited to watch? It has to be Arnaud Desjardins, just because I think he has so much potential coming up in terms of being a pro prospect. Yes, he's only played two years at Laval, but he already has a Vanier Cup championship ring on his finger, could potentially win multiple Vanier Cup championships. And the other guy I'm curious to see is Jack Zergiatis, who is a UConn transfer to the University of British Columbia. I believe he'll be at Montreal Alouettes training camp. And he goes to UBC with a, tra- a stacked, excuse me, quarterback roster there in a heated competition. But I'm really curious to see what he can do with the Alouettes, what he can pick up and take back to UBC. 
Former CFL offensive lineman Colin Kelly received an invitation to minicamp with the New Orleans Saints after being named All-XFL with the Seattle Sea Dragons. Is that a surprise? It's a huge surprise. This guy's 33 years old. How many guys who are 33 get looks in the NFL after playing pro elsewhere? Who knows? Maybe maybe this means there's a shot for McLeod Bethel-Thompson after all. Who knows? Who knows? The Hamilton Tiger Cats released former first-round pick Alex Fontana. Do you expect him to stick with another team? I think it's possible just because you're going to go through training camp and there's going to be injuries at some point or even early in the season. I can see him get picked up, but to this point in his career, he's certainly been a disappointment with relation to where he was selected in the CFL draft. Hamilton Tiger Cats linebacker Grant McDonald has retired from the CFL at the young age of 23 years old. Is there any chance he could be back in the three-down league someday? I don't think we will see him back. He is going to pursue a career as a firefighter. And I think that he is somebody who, you know, as as much as, you know, and selfishly I'm sad I'm not going to get to watch him play anymore. He's somebody who, once he makes that decision, I think he's done. So I do not think that he will be back in the CFL. The Winnipeg Blue Bombers signed undrafted free agent receiver Michael O'Shea, also known as the son of head coach Mike O'Shea. Despite O'Shea telling you, Dunk, at the Combine, that he didn't think it'd be a good idea for him to coach his own kid. How do you figure this all came about? You know, I think it happened with the realization that he probably wasn't going to get a pro shot unless the Blue Bombers signed him. Now, I do think that the GM there, Kyle Walters, felt like the son of Michael Shea, Michael, had some potential to be a pro. But this is going to be an interesting situation to watch in terms of how he performs at camp and if he ends up making the final roster or even the practice roster in Winnipeg. But... You can bet, and Michael Shea, I do believe, is a truthful guy, that he's going to play this down the middle and do what's best for the Blue Bombers with respect to his son earning his way into whatever ends up happening at the end of training camp. Jim Barker is back on the TF, TSN on CFL panel after winning a fifth grade cup with the Toronto Argonauts as an advisor in 2022. Is that an ideal fit? I like Barker on the panel, and obviously he helped the Argos this past year, getting them to a great cup. And the man's won five great cups. That said, for a panel looking to presumably get younger and engage younger audiences, don't you think it's a little strange that they've got a guy who's pushing 70? I would agree, Hodge. You would think that there would be an infusion of a young voice on that panel that's not to disrespect Jim Barker at all but you just have to look on social media and especially Twitter for people calling for changes to many things that TSN does with their broadcast and this is just another thing that fans can point to to say you're just going the old method of tried and true I understand Barker is a valuable CFL mind but it would be much better to have a younger perspective on that panel and realistically Hodge's probably just keeping the seat warm for whenever Bo Levi Mitchell decides to finish up his playing career and move into that broadcast role with TSN or whoever has the rights at that time because 
Bowie Mitchell could play for a number of years, but I think he's that new voice that TSN would be looking at to come in and really mix things up and give them a breath of fresh air. All right. On that note, we thank you as always for listening to the Three Down Nation podcast. We'll be back next Wednesday for another episode. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the Fileo fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.